So you shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. Remember, a cubit is generally considered 18 inches. So all you have to do is a foot and a half when you think of the cubit and you picture it. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold of all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both sides. You shall place them on its two sides and it shall be for holders for the poles which, with which to bear it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony that would be in the holy place before the holy of holies. Before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends to the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer a strange incense on it, or a burn offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord." So we've already seen the lamp and the table with the showbread. And again, as we picture inside, you know, the tabernacle is rectangular, and it's the length of half a football field, about 50 yards, but not as wide. And two-thirds of it was the holy place where the priest would go in to do the daily service. And there was the table with the showbread, which they regularly bake and put before the Lord, and the lampstand, which they kept lit before the Lord. And now this is the altar of incense that goes before the Lord. Now, the veil was there. They faced the veil. And on the opposite side was the holies of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded were in there with the mercy seat over there. And if you recall, the high priest, Aaron being the first one of them, they would go in once a year at the Feast of Tabernacles on Yom Kippur, that one day, the Day of Atonement. And they would go in with the blood of the ram, to offer for their own sins as a sinful high priest and sprinkle the blood. And then they would go back in again a second time for the people. So they had to have their cleansing before they come in intercession for the people. And of course, they also prayed over the scapegoat, the one that was released. There was two scapegoats. One was for the blood and the other was released in the Judean wilderness. Thus, we get the traditional term in American history, the scapegoat. That's how you get it. But what's interesting here is that this altar of incense has a special place with Yom Kippur separate from the showbread and the lamp because this gets the blood once a year from the high priest Aaron or the subsequent high priest. So there's something a little more special about this altar of incense that the same blood that was taking place on the day of Yom Kippur went on this instrument there. Now we are told that it's on this side of the veil with the showbread and the lamp. What is interesting is in the book of Hebrews, we're told it's on the other side of the veil. If you know your Bible, you know, you know that, that it's on the other side of the veil. So you can Google, like, why does it say this here and that in Hebrews? And you can find, like, 20 really good suggestions of why that is that way. I would just say, for me personally, as I see how important this is and how distinct this is, I think it's very possible by the time Christ came that they actually had the altar the altar of incense on the other side of the veil. That's certainly possible as because, you know, they had two high priests when Christ came, right? Caiaphas and, 
Ananias. They had two high priests because they, they became political positions. So for me, it's not hard to see it could go that way. There's all kinds of statements like, well, it represented this. And so when they say it's there, it's theologically there. I'm like, oh, it's just too much for me. But anyways, you'll figure it out when you get to heaven. And, uh, but if you've ever noticed that, Hebrews puts it inside. Here it's outside. And I just think it's one of those things that probably ended up inside. But you know what? You can Google it like anything else, and you can find some really good, plausible, uh, reasonable explanations for how you get that. But what you can't miss on this is this altar of incense is very important because it gets the blood on Yom Kippur. And what's interesting to me is the bread, you know, like Jesus being the bread of life and Jesus being the light of the world. Well, the altar of incense is like, wow, like that's, that's, you know, that's interesting to me. Like, because I'm not normally a smell person. I do stop and smell the plumerias, literally, in my neighborhood. I stop and smell the roses, literally, in my neighborhood. I teach my grandkids to stop and smell the flowers. And certainly plumerias immediately make me think of Hawaii and being on the north shore of Oahu. There's just triggers like that that we all know and can relate to. But I'm not really like that big. We're like, oh, I'm not like an incense person. You know, like how some people are really into incense. I'm not really that kind of guy. But this is important. There's something about the senses, the senses that we have, you know, to see and touch and all those things, that this is very important to the Lord. And so he said, no strange incense. There's only one way to do this, and it's my way, because it's a holy thing. This isn't bronze. This isn't silver, right? We've seen bronze and silver. This is gold. And don't get confused. The distinction of gold is very important in these things, and this is gold. You don't mess with the gold. You don't mess with silver or bronze, but you definitely don't mess with the things that are gold. It's a model of things in heaven. We read on. Verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that they may, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among you who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. So when they're, the census, they're counted as a person. You know, they, they give this half shekel, and it's an offering to the Lord. Verse 14. Everyone included among you, for those who are numbered from 20 years old and above, shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than a half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall see, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So this offering of the census ransom for each individual over 20, it actually went toward the service of the priesthood, as it says, for the services of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. A couple of things stand out right here. Census are interesting in the Bible, right? We're going to get to the book of Numbers and the book of Numbers is counting. How many people in every tribe? But then we also, that's, God set that that way. He said, take the census. They counted everybody, and they put, you know, three tribes to the north, the east, south, and the west, and then the holy things were in the middle, and they would roll out like an army with their banners based upon the order that God gives them, and again, we'll get that when we get to the book of Numbers. We do see, and with David, when he went to take a census, it was a bad idea. It was a bad idea. And Joab, who's pretty much a bad man, like he's that guy that fires everybody at work. You know, he's the guy in hockey. That he's, the, he's the guy that fights, you know, to protect the other guys. He's that guy. 
And, and even Joab, who's not particularly known for being spiritual, but actually pretty brutal and ruthless, says to David, the census is a really bad idea. Like when Joab comes to you and tells you it's a bad idea, you can be sure it's a bad idea. And David took that census and it, it angered the Lord. And that's another interesting story of, of things where it says that the, the Lord moved David to take the census and it says the devil moved David to take the census, which is really interesting because, again, it's one of those things. It's a test and it's a, it's a failed temptation. And David, you know, if anyone thinks he's stantic, he does they fall. And David, he had some falls. King David, 1000 BC, 500 years after this. But he took a census. And because he took that census, God took judgment on the nation of Israel. If you recall, God gave David choices, three days this way, three months, you know, three weeks, three months, and all this stuff. And he said, I'll take three days of God's judgment on me because in the people because he's merciful as opposed to falling into the hands of my enemies. But that census resulted in the death of tens of thousands of people, and it was forbidden by the Lord. And as a whole, you know, it, if you don't know much about ministry being a pastor, you, you generally, you'd never count people. Just like... Some people, they do memberships, and I'm not saying I'm against anybody that has formal memberships, but you just, you don't really, you know, they're God's people, so you got to be really careful, like, counting, and I got to be honest, with this COVID-19, I kind of don't like that people are coming back and they're being counted. Did you notice that? Because people are making reservations. You can only have 100 people or, you know, these bigger churches, and they're doing that, and I'm seeing already that some people can't go to church because they don't have a reservation, and there's not enough space, and I'm like, you know, the Lord knows, obviously, I'm not making a big deal of it. But there's something about counting God's people. I don't know, man. I don't, yeah, it's like, it's good to know who the sheep are. And the sheep know your voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. But in this case, even here, this is a census. And it's redemption census. And you're paying half a shekel for your soul, essentially. You're, you're being counted. And it's not to redeem yourself for heaven. But it's just like, it's you being alive and being in the house of Israel over 20 it's kind of like conscription. It's like the draft almost. Like you're over 20, you've come of age, you got, you, got to, you got to register for the draft, right? All the men here, when they're 18, they register for the draft. You still do when you, when you turn 18. Or as they like to say, like in Australia and the Commonwealth States, Commonwealth Nations, it's conscription where you, you know, it's a registration. Israel, still 18, boom, the draft. It's 20. So for them, it was 20. I find that interesting too. And let's be honest, isn't there a tremendous maturity difference between an 18-year-old male and a 20-year-old male? I mean, there might even, that might be one of the biggest distinctions of maturity in men between the age of 18 and 20. And I just have this theory. When you're 18, you think you get paid for being cool. When you're 20, you figure it out you don't get paid for being cool. That's just, that's a real summary that I think that, like, you know, like you have these big dreams, like you're going to do this, you can do all these stuff, and then you realize, you know what? Uh, I'm working for 15 bucks an hour at Subway, and they fire me when I show up five minutes late. And no matter what I do, I can't please my professor. And we can say there's a distinction for women too, but women generally mature quicker than boys, obviously, and men. I think that's pretty provable. But I think there's something about men that when they're 20, when you're 20, now you're standing before the Lord. You're 20. You're, now you're 20. Now man up, be a man, pay your half shekel, be counted in the covenant people, and realize whether you're poor or rich, no matter what community you come from in Southern California, you could come from Corona Del Mar or Linwood. Man, you come, you're 20 years old, and you pay your half shekel. It's equal. So no matter what your social standing is, you're equal with the 20-year-old male and the half shekel, which brings up a good point for us in application. We need to be reminded again, there's neither male nor female in Christ Jesus, Jew nor Scythian, 
free nor more bondage or enslaved, that God sees us all as one. For in Christ, we are one. And it's important to understand that, that God sees us as one. We are one. And what is the book of Acts? The book of Acts is the Jews, Jewish believers realizing that God loves everybody, not just them because they're Jewish, not just them because they're Jewish and speak Hebrew instead of Greek, but he loves everybody. And what is some of the contentions throughout the book of Acts historically, and even the contentions carrying over into the apostolic writings, is the contention that God has removed the barrier and he's given a chance of equality of salvation for all people coming the same way through faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or generation, or cultural standing. Very important. The church understands that we're right here at the cross, right smack dab in the middle, bowing the knee, and we bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes, okay. 20-year-old, stand up. If you're homeless at 20, if you're in a castle at 20, hey, show up, pay your, pay your half shekel, and be counted. I like it. It's like, it's like the three feasts, right? Three times a year, the minute I come before the Lord and be like, here we go. 20, got a man up at 20. And I think there's certainly a principle there for women as well that, you know, they just, we need to grow up. Paul said, when I was a child, I thought childishly, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And man, if there was a time for men to man up in the Holy Spirit, I know we can say this at any time, but I'm just thinking June 9th, 2020 is a really good time for the men to be spirit-filled and counted. Verse 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with his base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it for Aaron and his sons, shall wash their hands and their feet and water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with the water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die, and it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and to his descendants through their generations. We're going to see in Leviticus a lot of common sense. I don't know if this is as much common sense as it is something spiritual and consecrated. It's probably both. But I'm thinking if you're handling raw meat and and dealing with meat, the offerings on the altar, it's probably a really good idea to bathe before you handle the meat and bathe after you handle the meat. I'm just thinking that's pretty good hygiene principles. So why not have a big tub there for everyone who's handling this stuff to, it's proper hygiene. It's actually, you know, we talk about wash your hands. We've got the sign out there that says, you know, hand sanitation. I mean, I'm on the freeway driving on the 405. It says, remember, wash your hands for 20 seconds, right? This is good common sense. There might be something more spiritual about the consecration of the holiness of what you're doing too, symbolic of washing and all that. Either way, it's just good common sense. And it's bronze, right? We talk, here's bronze. The altar of incense is gold. This is bronze. This is where human beings bathe. That's bronze. <laughs> no, no golden bathtubs. You get that? Bronze. This is bronze. Verse 22. More of the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekel of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hand of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and its utensils, the laver and its base, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils and the layers, the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying... 
This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured out on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of its on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Verse 34, And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, uh, stati and uncha and gallum, and pure frankincense with these sweet spices, and there shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy, and you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the top, and you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be the most holy to you. But as for the incense which you make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. So a common denominator here with the holy anointing oil and the incense for the altar of incense is that both are holy, both are unique, and you cannot make anything like it for your personal use in your home or any copycat or even like a abbreviation from it, an aberration of it. Which brings up a really good point. This smell from both these had to be so beautiful and so special they could only be associated with the Lord. And even as I smell a plumeria, and I smelt the first one on the block last night, took Fitz and Lucy out for an evening walk, and there's a giant plumeria tree right across from Robert and Ethelin's house. And you can see it getting ready, getting ready, getting ready, and there it was, that first plumeria. I walked over there, smelled that plumeria, and what always happens when I smell a plumeria, like I said, I think of Hawaii. It's like I can feel the trade winds. It's like I can... Like 10 in the morning on the North Shore, like the surf's about to get really good at Rocky Point. The ocean's blue. It's warm out, about 84 degrees. So it's a, it's a northeast wind. The locals are going, getting out to go get breakfast. It's like I can smell a, a lifetime ago of when I was a pro surfer and I got paid to surf. It, it, that one smell, it's like, you know, ratatouille when he eats the thing. You know, it's, it all flashes back to him in ratatouille, right? The, the, the chef critique, the, the food critique. It's like it all comes back to him in that Pixar movie, Ratatouille. And just one moment, the taste, and all his whole life flashes before him. Well, think about this. God's like, this anointing oil, there's only one thing you can associate with it. It's consecrated to me. And this altar of incense oil, you can only smell that when you're in the tabernacle serving me. It's unique to me. It cannot be associated with something vile or vulgar or mutated or aboriginal. Isn't that neat? What's holy is holy. Keep it holy, right? Like just holy things. It's holy. When we say whatever's true, virtuous, and praiseworthy, like meditate on those things, these two smells, from the anointing oil and the altar of incense, it's like that plumeria. When I smell plumeria, I don't think of Oklahoma. When I smell hay, I think of Oklahoma or Nebraska, right? We all have these things, and nothing against the smell of hay. Some people love the smell of hay, especially horse people. I'm just saying that plumeria, it's just one thing. I don't think about the plumeria on the backside of the street on Munster Avenue. I think about plumerias in Hawaii. So 
I think we can relate to this, that God's saying, this is really special. Keep it really special. So let's think about this for a moment before we go on. What is in your life that God's done that just, it's really special. It's just really special. It's you and the Lord. It doesn't roll into other elements. It's just, it's just something really special, you and the Lord. It's kind of like those memories with your kids. If you've ever done special trips with just one kid, it's really special. I was talking with one of the teenagers from our congregation on Saturday night. Uh, it was actually the Molina's daughter, Isabella. And uh, I was talking about when Leah did gymnastics, that there were times we went to gymnastics meets where it's just me and Leah. Like we went to Santa Barbara and stayed at that Best Western just north of Carpinteria, and the competition was at UC Santa Barbara. And that whole weekend is just so special. I, like, as a parent, if you're a parent, I remember everything. Now, I remember stuff with all four kids, but I really remember that. That was Leah and Dad. We had a couple trips to Vegas for gymnastics meets. Same thing. To me, that's kind of like the anointing oil. It's just, it's a unique memory. It's a special memory in a relationship that does not... I have special memories with Hannah and Timmy and Luke, but those are very special memories. And so I actually encourage Isabella, hey... Treasure it all, because she talked about being an all-day soccer turn, excuse me, an all-day softball tournament with her parents and how much fun it was. I go, treasure that, because there'll be a day when you don't go to all-day softball tournaments, and you'll look back. So make those days special. Make it about with your family more than about the softball. Make it about the friends that you're with on your team than about the softball and, and big dreams. You can have the big dreams, but in the end, you'll look back 10 years later, it'll be the special things that was special between you and people you loved and people that love the Lord, her parents guiding her in the Lord and the lessons they want her to learn, preparing her to serve the Lord her entire life through these things. Keep the holy things holy and keep them special. For what fellowship has Christ with Belial? 2 Corinthians. Verse 30, chapter 31. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called my name by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for settings, in carving wood, to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed, I have appointed him, with him, Aholib, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on it, all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table, its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the laver in its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments of his sons, the minister's priest, the anointing oil, and the sweet incense for the holy place, according to all I have commanded you, they shall do. And we talked about this a bit last week, that God gave Moses the instructions of what to do, but then Moses delegated to the very people that God raised up to do it. It's like the book of Acts, chapter 6. The apostle said, we must stick to the word of God in prayer. Raise up from among yourselves seven people who can do this task properly. And they did. Men who have the spirit of wisdom and those types of things and good, good rapport. And they did. And this is the beauty of the body of Christ. This is a foreshadow of that where God gives godly leadership, and they, to the, for the kingdom to advance, God is constantly raising up. I mean, in Timothy, he says, 
teach others that they might teach others. It's always that reproduction in the body of Christ with discipleship for men and women and letting people run with their gifts and to develop their gifts. And that's what we want to do. So he said, according to all that I commanded you to do, they shall do. So Moses is the leader, but the equipping is for the, the saints who would do the work. And these guys were equipped by the Holy Spirit with practical skills to do what they were called to do. And I think it's just a reminder to all of us that really whatever leadership we might be in, we're always looking to see who God is raising up and what we can delegate and letting people make mistakes and grow and learn as they're doing this. That was one of the great experiences I had for three years at Calvary Vista from 1988 to 1990, serving under Pastor Brian Broderson. Brian Broderson was so good at raising people up and letting them figure it out. I mean, he really was like a coach. He didn't call many timeouts. Like, you'd want to call timeouts. Like, no, you just, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. And you'll, you'll, you'll find your traction with the Lord. And that's how Brian's planted dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of churches all over the world because he's, he's, he's recognized people who are gifted and he lets them just figure it out and find their traction. He, he was always available if you asked him, just like Pastor Chuck, but that was Pastor Chuck's strength as well. But hey, you know, like, let him figure it out. And it's like being a parent. You, you're there for your kids, but they got to figure some stuff out, right? Like you think you know where they should go to college, but they got to figure it out. And you got to trust that God's got a plan with it. And so it's like, God had called these guys. He had filled these guys, and he had appointed these guys. You see those three words, called, filled, appointed. That's what God does. That's what he does. And you just, we're called, filled, and appointed for what we want to do with us. Remember last week, we talked about being consecrated and sanctified and anointed. We're getting these terms a lot with the priests, different terms, but similar concept. They were completely prepared by God to do the work he's calling them to, even as we are fully equipped by God to do the work he's calling us to do. And if you're a leader, we want to be sensitive to recognize who God's raising up, that we can encourage them to be fruitful in the gifts that God's calling them to do. Whatever God calls us to do, he's going to fill us with his power, and we are appointed to do it. And if we're a leader, we, we want to do it in our calling, but we also want to recognize it and equip it in others. Verse 12, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath therefore for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the last thing we get here on the mountain is this aspect of the Sabbath. And we've covered the Sabbath a couple times, so I'm not going to belabor it. But remember, the key phrase of the Sabbath is verse 16. It's the children of Israel in their covenant with God. 
And remember, the church celebrated their fellowship and broke bread on the first day of the week, the day of the Lord's resurrection. And there are those who would seek to put the church under a Sabbath law, uh, a work of the Sabbath. And there are those who attack us for gathering on a Sunday to go to church. And they're wrong. And they mishandle the scriptures completely. However, that being said, there is a principle of the Sabbath. And we see that there in uh, verse 17, where it says that the Lord rested and was refreshed. And I've said this for 32 years, as long as I've been a believer, it is really important that we make time to have a day off. It is really important to be refreshed in the Lord because life is a marathon and it's, it's pace and flow. And some people just sprint out and they, they, they just, the wheels fall apart. The wheels come off because they don't know how to refresh themselves. And it's super important that we're refreshed in the Lord. And depending on our schedule, sometimes we have to be super disciplined to just say, this is my Sabbath day here, that's my Sabbath day there. When I came back from, we came back from Vermont in 96, and the ministry was guest speaking. I was going out so, I was guest speaking a lot, literally hundreds of times in one year. And I had to discipline myself during the course of a week to figure out which day was the Sabbath. And they might rotate. I never like to get past seven without a break, but sometimes you just kind of, all right, it's the, it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. But had to have those days off for to be refreshed in the Lord, to spend time with my wife, to spend time with young children or growing children like Hannah when she's in fifth grade or sixth grade. And even though I often took my kids on these ministry trips where we went all over the place doing different things, had to, had to have that day off. It's really important that we, we give ourselves that day to be refreshed. And, and we need to protect it and guard it. It's a day with the Lord to be refreshed in the Lord, to go forward in the power of the Lord for the things that come in the next week. And I just think it's a wonderful principle, and we, we just got to turn it off. And sometimes we have to just discipline ourselves. Now, some days are easier to take a day off than others. Some are very difficult. Some people have a really hard time taking a Monday off, right? Because we're just going back to when we're in school. It's really hard to take a Monday off. A lot of pastors take Monday off. I always had the hardest time taking Mondays off. I want to do stuff like Monday. I want to get after it. So it's really hard for me to, when I had to discipline myself, take a Monday off. Friday, easy peasy, right? I'd take any Friday off. It's important to keep this in mind when you're thinking about your world and your calling as a disciple. Just that principle is a good principle. I think you have to guard it. If you don't guard it, you think your boss is going to guard it? I mean, who's going to guard your Sabbath day with the Lord? Not for justification or because of a covenant, but because it's a good principle, because all Scripture is profitable, that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And even though it's not a covenant thing for us, like the children of Israel, it's still a practical principle for us to learn from. Chapter 32. Now we, this is our third chapter of the night and our final chapter with the golden calf and Aaron. So now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron, that's Moses' brother, the high priest, and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. All the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it, with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then he said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early in the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
this is just one of those passages and chapters you just go like, I can't even believe I'm reading this. Like when you read this chapter, you just go like, I can't even believe this. Like this is Aaron, the first high priest. What is he thinking? 40 days will test a person, right? Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and it tested the people. 40 days and the people melted down. What would first seem surprising, but as we understand human behavior, it's not surprising at all. What seems surprising is that if you're going to have a party and eat and drink and be merry, just do it. Like if you're going to go to the bars on Huntington Beach, go to the bars on Huntington Beach and be a bar hopper on Huntington Beach. But to take Jesus to the bars on Huntington Beach and say, hey, we're going to church while we bar hop in Huntington Beach, like that's really weird. It, they, don't, they don't go together. And yet there are so many people who live a carnal, worldly, lustful life and they want to bring religion into it. And so they go to church on Sunday or whatever, and they live a very sinful life, and they aren't set apart, and they don't understand their consecration. And so when you look at this, you're like, how do you make a golden calf idol, and then say that it, you build an altar, and you say, it's a feast to the Lord? But people do, because how many people go to church in America and don't believe the Bible is the final authority? and say they believe in Jesus, but their lives don't match up to it all, and they make Jesus a concoction of their mind. They bring Jesus down to their carnal level and becomes a God of their mind who's just as sinful and lustful and depraved as they are. That's how you do it. It's just a new form of golden calf. All these churches don't believe the Bible. All these churches that condone sinful lifestyles that the Bible clearly calls sinful and consequential for being uh, omitted and not entered into heaven. How do you do that? What's like this? You just find someone that appears spiritual more than you. They make a golden calf. You say it's a feast of the Lord, and you eat and drink and you play. There's plenty of people that go to church like that. There's lots of people that go to church with a golden calf. I don't know why. Like, I never wanted to go to church when I was hanging out with a golden calf. Like, I never saw the golden calf in the church going together. Like, in my mind, I never saw the golden calf in the church going together. Either I'm going for the golden calf or I'm going to church. But the two don't go together. So it's hard for me to understand the people who come to church with their golden calf and go to the church that thinks like they do and lives like they do and teaches what they want to hear with doctrines ticking to their ears. I don't get it. I honestly don't. But obviously some people do because 90% of the churches in America don't believe the Bible. And to some degree they have golden calves. And God forbid we have a golden calf here. We learn from Pastor Chuck in the Calvary movement, teach the whole counsel of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And just not that we're perfect and not that we've arrived, but we know a golden calf when we see it. And we know there's no place for a golden calf in the house of the Lord and the worship of Yahweh. Verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. This is an interesting dialogue, and it goes two ways. And here's the Lord speaking on the first part. But if you've never seen this before, it's interesting. And who knows what the Lord's trying to teach Moses and us. But he says in verse 7, Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. You know, when you're so embarrassed about something, you don't even want to associate with it. Like, your people. These are your people. They're not my people. They're your people. It's very interesting how God says, like, 
your people that you, Moses was like, what? I thought we had to deal with the burning bush. Like, how are they my people? Like, I just mind my business in the burning bush. You told me to take my sandals off. Like, how are they my people? God's like, they're your people. It's like, you know, and you're so pumped up for your team in the playoffs and they just get shredded and you don't want to wear your shirt outside of your team. Like, that's those people. That's not my people, right? I mean, this, there's college classes on this type of stuff. They're, they're, they're your people. I think God's just testing Moses. And he says, I will make of you a great nation. Hey, we can start all over. And by the way, he could have, like, I suppose, I mean, God can do whatever he wants, but everything's a test, isn't it, right? Like we say that, everything's a test. COVID-19 was a test. Post-COVID is a test. It's all a test. Like, hey, they're your people. I'll start over with you. And Moses is like, no, listen, <laughs> time out. I don't think so. Then Moses said in verse 11, he pleaded with the Lord and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've spoken of, I've given to, I give to your descendants. And they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So God said something, and Moses said something in response. God, Moses reminds God that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Israel. And you made all these promises, so how can you start over with me? It doesn't work. But notice what, what Moses said in verse 11. He said, they're your people. <laughs> Did you catch that? <laughs> hey, it's like a hot potato. They're, they're your people. These are your people. They're not my people. But, you know, let's, let's, let's make this work. And so it says in verse 14, the Lord relented from his harm. And that's something that's very encouraging me tonight. Very encouraging tonight. Because if God would relent from harm against Israel under these circumstances, what harm might he relent from right now for this planet, for our country, and the body of Christ? That's how I, I look at this. Like, if God relents from harm, what harm might he relent from? Driving home last week from North County, and I've shared this with a few of you personally, I, I just was breaking all down in my mind, everything that's going on. And if there's any, it's like a Rubik's Cube, you know, like, or a maze. Is there a way out of this? Like, is there a way where we all live amicably and we continue as Americans somehow in civility or whatever? And, and, I, and I was trying to think, like, how, 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 would that, how does it even happen and how does it work and how do we resolve these things? And there's just such, like, a dark cloud over our planet. It's just, it's just such a dark cloud. It's not just us. It's the entire planet. And there's just, there's just things you can't explain going on in our, in our timeline, in our generation right now. It's not like, how... How does this work? And if, like, you read things on strategies in business or strategies in war and stuff like that, you, you realize, like, you know, I, I'm very familiar with the book The Art of War, and I just thought, as I studied the forces of evil, of destruction and mayhem, and the suppression of the church, and even churches being suppressed even gather right now on this day, and the reasons they give for the churches being suppressed, I thought, you know, the enemies of the church and the gospel, they really are masters of the universe right now. They're, they're controlling everything. And I concluded, there's no way out of this by human means. There really is. There's, there's no way out of this by human means. 
The only way that this gets turned around for a, a decrease of hostility and violence and an increase of civility and respect for all human beings in this country and on this planet, the only way it's going to happen is if the Lord delivers us. There is no other way. I don't see it. The only resolution to save this country right now is if the people who know Jesus Christ personally cry out to the Lord to relent and, and intervene and prevent us from de descending into total anarchy and chaos or totalitarian authoritarian governments that far reach much farther than what we have experienced to this day. We got to cry out that God would relent and he'd intervene because there have been many injustices in American history, in human history, in every country. Pick any country for injustices. There's no shortages of them. And in the end, we just need the Lord to be merciful on everybody. Because if he's not merciful on everybody, we're all headed for a very bad future. We need the Lord to relent and to intervene. Because if you study history, we don't ever want to go anything like World War I or World War II and events like that. We do not want to see humanity in our country and on this planet right now descend in that type of barbarianism that our forefathers have seen just a few generations ago. We need the Lord to relent. So we say, Lord, please relent. Please have mercy. Please be gracious and not attribute to us, each one of us, our guilt and sins, but cover us in your blood. God, pour out your special perfume upon this nation and upon this generation, upon our children and our children's children, because if the, the Lord does not relent, you have to be a rocket scientist. There's, there's no way out. It can't, the Lord has to intervene. And the body of Christ needs to be crying out right now like we never have before. Why do you think Franklin Graham sends these emails like, we got to pray right now? Why do you think Greg Laurie says, Jesus is coming back? Why do you think Walt Reese is saying, we got to pray right now? It's right now. It's now or never. This is it. We're waiting the balances. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. It's the day of the Lord in the valley of decision. And we have to intercede like Moses on behalf of the sinful people, including ourselves, and ask for mercy that God would relent. There's lots of golden calves in our land. There's golden calves all over this planet. And the end of the age is going to just lead to one giant golden calf, the Antichrist. May God relent. Verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. The two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. And on one side and on the other where they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, no, that's, that's, that's not the noise of a shout of victory. Nor is it the noise of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it in powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you've brought so great a sin upon them. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that, that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him. 
And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast in the fire, and this calf came out. It's crazy, isn't it? That how we check out when we're in idolatry. We don't think right. Verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword in his side and go out from the entrance to the entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you've written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. Now therefore, go lead the people to the place which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angels will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Man, it's so heavy. And yet somehow it's almost comical when Aaron says it jumped out of the fire, right? But how many times have we made excuses like that? Like we make excuses. Like, well, you know, but like you can always, when you lose your cool, you can make an excuse for it. You know, I had a bad day at work. The kids just, you know, they, this person on the freeway did this to me. Like there's no, there's always excuses if you want excuses for whatever. Aaron has excuses, just Insane. The people did this. I just, oh, and it came like that. It's like, it's, it's crazy. But Moses said to Aaron in verse 21, what did these people do to you that you brought this so great a sin upon them? What an accountability for leadership, right? What did these people do to you that you brought this accountability upon them? See, Moses holding Aaron accountable for the effect of his decisions to appease the people. And you see, Aaron even kind of plays on that where he says, well, you know the people, they're set on evil, right? And so since people are set on evil, we need to steer them toward good. When people have a mob mentality, we need to move them toward the right mentality for good. We don't want to stir them up for evil and perpetuate evil and accentuate their evil. Good leadership steers people toward the good, not the bad. Godly leadership steers people toward what's right, not what's wrong. Aaron, why did you do this that you brought so great a sin upon them? The one who allowed it is held accountable for the evil that the people did. And all he can say is, well, you know the people, right? Right? We do know the people, and that's why I need to to lead them in a good way, in a positive way. All leaders, however however many people you lead, will give an account for it. I'll give an account for my family and WG. It's a heavy thing. Let not all be teachers, for we receive a stricter judgment. And verse 25, it said, Moses, he saw the people were unrestrained. The leadership did not restrain them from evil, and it was to their shame amongst their enemies that they were not restrained. So God help us to be restrained from evil 
in our personal lives to be governed by God and accountable to God, to be restrained by the Holy Spirit from evil, that's an embarrassment to us and to the Lord we serve. We serve Jesus Christ. We bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And Moses says there in verse 38, you know, I'll, I'll go make atonement. And like Paul pleading for the Jews in the book of Romans, Moses says, you know what, like, just blot me out. And God's like, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> That's a wonderful thought, Moses. We appreciate your heart on that. But listen, the one who sins will give an account to me. Give an account to me. Moses, you have a good heart right here, and you mean well, but no, no. These people, what they did, they're going to give an account. So we just need to be reminded when people are just so... Uh, worked up right now that we're all going to give an account for every idle word for every attitude, action, reaction. So it's really important that we are governed by the Holy Spirit and we exercise self-control. Not just in events that we're all aware of but just even in the trickle-down effect. Like I had a neighbor come after me yesterday for no reason and pull up next to me and just start yelling at me. And it was crazy. Like, I was blown away. It's just one of those things. And, you know, and he realized that he was wrong. And I, I had a soft answer. I'm like, that, that's normally me. Like, that could be me, like, being all upset. He accused me of letting my dog go to the bathroom on his yard. And he, was, he tracked me down. I had, the, okay, here's the bag. Oh, man, sorry, it's all good. Let's all just exhale. It's okay. Like, he's furious. Like, we got to bring it down a couple notches, you know? Let's think about what we're thinking. Let's think about what we're saying. Let's think about what we're doing. How we're acting, how we're reacting. Because we're all going to give an account. God says to Moses, the one who sins, they'll give an account to me. It's a good thought. But everyone gives an account. So let us be reminded tonight that we're all going to give an account. And I'm not worried about what someone's saying here or someone's saying there. I'm concerned about what I'm thinking and how I'm responding. And that's what we should all be focused on right now. Governed by the Holy Spirit in our personal lives. Amen?